In this series, we've been taking a look at the life and ministry of Jesus in an imperfect chronological order. We have seen that he has the power and authority to give the word of God and preach that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We've seen that he has the power and authority to cast out demons, to heal all kinds of illnesses and diseases, to make people who were unclean, clean. He healed those diseases either up close or from a distance. Now we're going to come to some of his teaching, and we're coming to this point, which is commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount, which is intimidating for me. You see, I've been preaching long enough, and I've had the opportunities to go to, like, the Southern Baptist Convention, and they have, at the start of their conventions, a pastor's conference. And at that pastor's conference, usually it's not so much about making pastors better, but giving the famous and growing church pastors an opportunity to preach. And what usually happens after they preach is that people, pastors will then go out in the hallway and purchase, back when I was in it was cassette tapes. Now it's DVDs and thumb drives and whatever. But they would purchase those. And I knew enough to know they were purchasing them, not enough because they thought the sermon was so great they wanted to hear it again, but because they wanted to copy it. They wanted to preach that sermon back home for, since, after all, if that pastor was well-recognized and they thought he did a great job, they wanted to emulate him. I never bought any of those. But I am intimidated by Jesus' sermon. One, by the authority of what he has to say. And two, I also understand because at the end of the sermon, even people acknowledge the power and authority he had as he preached. So as a result on this Sermon on the Mount, I am not going to try to preach it all at one time. I'm going to break it up into a number of bites. One, because I don't have the same, for lack of a better word, charisma as Jesus or other famous pastors. And so you would probably start looking at your watch saying, well, when are we going home? Isn't he done yet? So we're going to break it up. But I also want to break it up because I think there are certain really important things that Jesus has to say in this sermon that again, we call Sermon on the Mount. And I want to use this, if you will, like a player coach. Player coach in the sense of, I'm still in the game just like the rest of you, so it's not like, well, I've achieved it all, and therefore, now I'm going to tell you what to do. I'm going to say, this is what Jesus told us to do. So in that, whether it's, say, basketball or football or whatever, you usually come up with a game plan. And then during the, the course of the game, oftentimes at halftime or whatever, there are some adjustments. And, and like in football, the, the linebackers will have a little breakout session and, and they'll make some adjustments and say, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. Now, in Jesus' situation, we don't need to make any adjustments in his strategy or his teaching. But what it does allow us to do, whether you're in the first quarter, halftime, third quarter, or at the end of the fourth quarter in your life, it is good to look at what Jesus has taught us to see if we are not only 
understanding his teaching, but doing it. It's not good enough to be able to recite a whole bunch of Bible verses, but if they haven't changed their lives, then they're of minimal importance to us. And one of that, those examples of that is there was a commercial several years ago where there's this football team and they're in the locker room and the coach is just yelling and screaming and, and carrying on about the lack of execution, whatever. And one appears to be a lineman kind of raises his hand and says, but coach, we're ahead. He goes, that's what I'm talking about. You're complacent and whatever. And so a lot of times we as Christians have kind of two things that we look at. We either get complacent. Jesus forgave me. I have a whole bunch of grace and I just go and live my life the way I want to because he's going to forgive me anyway. Or we have the sense of we are so far behind in the score that it just doesn't matter what we do. That's the awesome thing about Jesus. You're going to win, and it doesn't matter what the score is, so get in the game. Know what it is that he's requiring of us. And so he's going to start off this Sermon on the Mount that is called with what is called the Beatitudes. Now, the Beatitudes means supreme blessing, supreme blessedness. However, different translations, when it comes to this passage of the Beatitudes, translate it blessings differently. So I'm going to start with the first few verses, and I'm going to kind of hone in on bless, blessed. So when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Now I find it interesting, I, I would have really liked to have sat down and had you all stand up. But again, I know that you're going to kind of lift one foot, and you're going to get tired, and, and you're going to give me less time to speak than you do if you're sitting down. And so I'm going to let you sit down. But... Um, it would be cool if I got to sit down. However, I'm not, I guess, at that point in my, my ministry or health that I have to. There is, uh, for instance, like Dr. Stanley, if you've seen him, he's at that point where he sits on a chair with a round table. And that may happen to me sometime. But at this point, because of our cultural situation, I'll continue to stand and maybe I'll walk around a little more than I do or don't. But uh, the deal is, so I'm not going to make you stand. But I want you to think about it. That Jesus' sermon, not only the content, but the delivery is so amazing that they stand and they listen and they hear. But he's speaking to his disciples. And he's going to make some comparisons and some contrasts and talk about who disciples are and what the qualities and characteristics are and the characteristics and, and qualities of non-believers. So as we go through this, as a player coach, I'm going to encourage you to review it, and not just the time while I'm speaking, but throughout the week and weeks, to kind of do some self-checking. Do I have these same qualities? What is it that God needs to work on me? Notice that I said that God needs to work on me. Because this isn't like turning over new leaf. This is God working in us. So Jesus is going to speak to his disciples. And he said, blessed. And I'm going to stop there. Sometimes I say blessed 
because I want to get the idea that it's past tense. Blessed, blessed. And then he's going to talk. And these Beatitudes, if you've taken any logic courses, you've heard of the if-then statements. If this, then that. Jesus isn't going to use in these Beatitudes the if-then. He's going to simply say, then this, then this, then this. Now, the word blessed, if your translation says happy, I hum no, I don't humbly, I unhumbly disagree. It's not happy. I give you an example. There is a psalm that says, bless the Lord, O my soul. It's not saying happy the Lord, O my soul. Blessed means, and if you look in the dictionaries, it, they'll say it says an approval statement. I think it's more than that. It's an approval with benefits. So I'll give you a really bad example. If you've worked a long time at a particular job and your boss comes up to you and slaps you on the back and say, you know, you've been a great employee. That's praise. That's not blessing. That's praise. If on the first day you show up and you haven't even clocked in yet, the owner of the business comes up and says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give you the business. That's blessed. You didn't deserve it. You didn't do anything to acquire it. It's because of the gift and the qualities of the owner of the business decided to bless you. So God says, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit, in essence, recognizes that when it comes to my spiritual abilities, I'm bankrupt. I'm maxed out on all the credit cards. I can't get any other loans. I'm broke. I'm poor. And the only way that I'm going to have any type of spiritualness is to acknowledge that I'm poor. Jesus said that he came to preach to the poor. And he was coming to preach not only to the financially poor, but especially to those who acknowledged that they were poor in spirit. Because it's not until you acknowledge that you're poor in spirit that you're going to do anything about it. As long as you think you're self-sufficient spiritually, you're just going to go on doing what you're doing. I don't need God. He's a crutch. All the other excuses people give. But the people who acknowledge that they're poor in spirit, something happens. And notice, blessed, it's past tense. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The very thing that Jesus came to proclaim is what the poor in spirit will receive. We enter the kingdom of heaven, not because we're deserving, not because we're rich in spirituality, but because we are poor, bankrupt, and we understand it is God that needs to pay our debt. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's easy to think, well, what Jesus means here is 
Oh, those of us who are just growing around sad face and always everything is, oh, poor me, miserable. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about those who are spiritually mourning. All too often, we take a look and there's nothing wrong with it, but not exclusively. We are usually thankful, if we are, that Jesus has forgiven us of our sins. But we rarely mourn that he was required to do so. There's a duo as a teenager that I like to listen to. Now, back when I was a teenager, I'll give, let you know my age. You know, a lot of people like Cream and, and uh, Steppenwolf and all these other hard rock groups. And, and they were fine if you'd go to a party, but I'm not kind of a party guy. So, you know, so I tended to listen to people like Neil Diamond, I, you know, uh, Solitary Man, you know, because that kind of fit my M.O. And, and, uh, and the other group that I, I liked to listen to a lot was Simon and Garfunkel. I am a rock. I'm an island. Kind of, again, fit the depression I was going through at the time. But they had one song called Dangling Conversation. And in there, there is a phrase that has always stuck with me all the way back as a teenager. And it says this, at no time do we place our bookmarkers to measure what we've lost. Usually, again, when you're going through school, you're required to read so many pages. And so you put the bookmarker, well, I got 100 pages done, I got 200. And we celebrate the fact that we made the accomplishment through the book. But we never think about what is it that I didn't get out of the book. It's just that I got it completed. We should mourn that we are not in the position as, as disciples as God had intended us to be. Could you imagine if just a week ago you decided to give it all to Jesus? instead of some of it. How you'd be different today than a week ago, or a month ago, or six months ago, or a year ago, or at that time when you were so excited that Jesus forgave you and you got baptized and you thought that you could charge hell with a squirt gun because you were so excited for what he'd done for you. But you know, life gets in the way. Maybe we should mourn that we're not more closely using that open door as we do. It also says that they will be comforted, which means that God is not here to say, well, you know, you blew it. He'll comfort you. And there are going to be those who are going to suffer. And Revelations tells us that God himself will wipe away every tear. What an amazing comfort that God himself wipes away the tears. And notice, as blessed are those who mourn, it doesn't say maybe they will be comforted, for they will be comforted. Blessed are, and the old, uh, the um, King James says meek, my translation says gentle. 
And I not so humbly think that that's a better translation because too often people think meek means weak. And Jesus was not weak, but he was meek. He was gentle. Gentle or the old term meek is not you lack power, but you didn't exercise it. When our son was a little baby, we decided to use the word gentle because it's hard to say gentle meanly. So it kind of, you kind of get, and there was a time, one of the first times I remember using that word on him, he had a little chick in his hand. And he started to squeeze it. Okay, he's a baby. It didn't mean that he didn't lack power to crush that thing. But we said gentle, gentle, so that he might understand that he had the power to crush it. But he chose not to. So blessed are those who are gentle. But that's not the thinking of the world. The thinking of the world is an aggressive use of force. You've got those who've always wanted to be in power, whether it's through democracy or oligarchy or dictatorships. I'm in control. It's my word. You obey me. And the interesting thing is, no matter how far their territory extended, it didn't last long. Because it wasn't their world to take. It wasn't their world to keep. So notice it said, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Being gentle means it's not about your agenda. It's about allowing God to do God's thing because it's his world. And ultimately, you can devise all the plans you want to rule and reign. But God said, my people will rule with me. We will inherit the earth. Now, I already know I get Bakersfield. So my wife will probably get someplace like Malibu or Newport Beach. because she loves the ocean and she's had to put up with me. And I'll be lucky if I get Bakersfield. As I told you before, I'll probably get a 7-Eleven there. Just that's about as far as I get. But so I'll get to inherit something. But the gentle shall, not maybe, shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I dare you to think of anything other than righteousness where you will be satisfied. There's a car, or I've got some people from Texas, or a truck that you've wanted to buy for a long time with a gun rack and all the great stuff and all of that, and, you're, and you can't wait to buy that car or truck or a sports car or whatever it is. And when you get it, Oh, man, you want to drive a lot, and you wash it, and you show all your friends. Then there comes a time when you look at it and go, but I don't want to wash it. So I'll just drive it around dirty some, you know. Yeah, I know the mud's been there since the last time it rained, but it'll rain again. You know, we, we don't 
You fall madly in, in love until you don't. The world pursues pleasure and fame and power and none of those satisfy. One of the great testimonies is if we listen to the people who acquire wealth and power and fame, how they seem to look for something else. So they look for drugs or alcohol or something to fill it because it isn't satisfying. And the sad thing, all they had to do is read Solomon. Solomon goes, I have wisdom. So I started setting my heart on everything. So he got wisdom and power and fame and wealth and all those things. And he ultimately said, it's all vanity. They're not satisfactory. So if you want to be truly satisfied, Jesus says, hunger, and thirst for righteousness. And Jesus himself, to people he talked to, like the woman at the well or Nicodemus, if you drink the water that I have, living waters will arise. If you eat the bread of life, my body, you will never hunger again. Jesus says, if you pursue righteousness, you will be, shall be satisfied. Why is it that we're so often willing to pursue all of those other things that are temporary and yet unsatisfying? And Jesus says, thirst and hunger for righteousness and you shall be satisfied. Blessed Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Kids especially, but you'll hear a lot of people say, especially when they think they're getting a bum deal, well, that's not fair. Everybody wants to be fair. And one of the, the expressions I heard is, if you want something to be exact, if you're spilling like a cupcake, let's say, and you're looking at five-year-olds, have one five-year-old cut the cupcake and let the other five-year-old choose first. You will know to the exact milliliter, millimeter, that that thing will be cut exactly in half because they want to make sure it's fair and they don't get any less. I'm old enough. I don't want fairness. I want mercy. I don't want what I'm entitled to or deserve. I want mercy. So when I mess up with you, I don't want you to treat me fairly. I want you to treat me with mercy. And when it comes to God, I really don't want him to treat me with fairness. I want him to treat me with mercy. But there is a principle of heaven that says this. If you want to be forgiven, forgive. If you want mercy, give it. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You want to make sure you get mercy, not fairness, be merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The pure in heart. 
Not the 99% perfect, but the pure. If I took a glass of milk, which is white, and sat it here and dropped a single drop of oil in that, you think it's pure? There's only one drop of oil. But I suspect you wouldn't want to drink it. Because the little drop affects the entire context. Or a bottle of water, which I'm going to drink right now. Fortunately, it's generally pure. What if I only put a drop of arsenic? It's just a drop. Surely it can't hurt. Because look at all the volume of water. A single drop of arsenic certainly couldn't hurt. Oh yes, it could not only hurt, it can kill. And I say, desire to have a pure heart. Doesn't say be legalistic. Just have a pure heart. You have a pure heart, one that seeks entirely God. Not God some of the time, or God most of the time, or that you're a follower of his most of the time, but you are pure in it. They shall be, they shall see God. What a wonderful blessing. No wonder they're blessed. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Notice it didn't say blessed are those who are in peace or those who experience peace. He said blessed are the peacemakers. All too often people love to stir the plot. They come in, they see a problem. Instead of trying to resolve it, they want to make it worse because they enjoy seeing people at each other. Not so with Jesus. Jesus came to make peace. To make peace between you and God. Not only did he make peace between you and God, he reconciled us to him so that there is no longer any againstness against God. That God has a perfect relationship with us because of what Jesus did. He made peace. He says, my peace I give to you. So we take the peace that he gives to us and we make peace. We just don't be at peace. And notice the blessing. And you shall be called sons or children of God. And that title doesn't come because you and I think that they're children of God. The, the way it's phrased in the original, it's God who says, you're my child. Because you're a peacemaker. So thus far, we've taken a look at whether we should be poor in spirit and what our attitude is, whether we mourn, whether we are gentle, whether we seek and hunger and thirst for righteousness, whether we give mercy, whether we seek and to be pure, and whether 
We are peacemakers. And he's going to then say in verse 10, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. He didn't just say, blessed are those who are persecuted. It's blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. There are countries all over this world today who are persecuted for a number of different things. They're not persecuted because of seeking righteousness. They're persecuted because there are those who want power and want to dominate others. But he says, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is, not maybe, not will be, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then he's going to make it really personal. Because it's those. Blessed are those who have been. But then in verse 11 it says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So here's the, this then. You're blessed. If you're persecuted and people lie about you. Now, if you're a hypocrite and people say you're a hypocrite, no, you're a hypocrite. You're not being falsely accused. You're just doing what they say you are. But there's frequently people will lie about believers and disciples. When you're persecuted and all kinds of evil said about you because of Jesus, not because you're an idiot, but because of Jesus. He's going to say something that we don't naturally come by. Because most of us, let's face it, when we have hard times, we have pity parties. And we don't try to limit it to ourselves. You know, first we have kind of the pity party, oh, poor is me, whatever. And then we go to find somebody else and we try to get them to, yeah, they're treating you so bad. Oh, I'm so I'm so bad. And then we try to get somebody else. And if, and if you don't give me enough pity, then I, I forget you and I find somebody else who, oh, yeah, it's, it's just not fair. Notice what Jesus says. Rejoice and be glad. Jesus doesn't say have a pity party. He says rejoice. Jumping down and be glad. Why? For your reward in heaven is great. You see, I haven't said this in a while. Most people have the attitude, I'm just going to get into heaven by the skin of my teeth. And and all going to be good, and we'll walk the streets of gold, and it's just going to be wonderful. But you don't get into heaven by the skin of your teeth; you get into heaven by the blood of Jesus. But heaven isn't necessarily the great communist state in the sky, because otherwise he'd be lying here then. Because my reward would not be great, because it would be the same as everybody else. But he says, if I am persecuted for righteousness, if I'm persecuted because of him, my reward will be great. That's why I'm not so far getting out of Bakersfield. 
because I've had a pretty easy Christian life. Yeah, some of you don't like me sometimes, but you know, that that's, that's okay. Not like you nailed me to a cross yet. I know you thought about it, but you haven't done it yet. So rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. Why? Because you're going to be in great company. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Anybody who's ever taken a stand for God usually gets up persecuted and oftentimes killed. And our master was treated the same way. They persecuted him, they lied about him, they rejected him, and they nailed him to a cross and thought they were doing God a favor. And as we've learned, it is enough to be like our master. So what's our attitude? I want to kind of ruin the Beatitudes. Think about B-attitude. What is your attitude about these things? These things are not things that we do but are. We are not giving mercy. We are merciful. We're not people who seek and hunger for righteousness. We are people who seek and hunger and thirst for righteousness. We are gentle. We don't, well, I'm going to try to be gentle today. No, no, we become it because that's who he is. So the last scripture I want to share with you comes out of, of not his sermon but one of his disciples, whose name was originally Saul, who God changed to Paul. And in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, it says this, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Self-control against such things, there is no law. You see, in order to be the attitude, we need the Spirit to indwell us that we might be the attitude. Because otherwise, we're simply playing games. We're pretending to be gentle. We're pretending to be merciful. As opposed to seeing that the mercy that God has dealt with us, to see how he has been gentle with us. And in turn, the love that he has shown us, we give to others. Not because that's what we're supposed to do, but that's who we are, because we are the children of God. And if we have these qualities, there will be those who will hate us, but there will be others who want to come to that same Lord that we know because we they see in us Him. They want to be with us if because it's like being with Him. Jesus was exceptionally popular because He truly loved. 
Yeah, there were those who wanted the stuff. But there were those who followed him because he had the words of life. And we should be those kinds of people. So that people say truly that not only God says we are the children of God, but that the world might acknowledge. I don't understand why you think the way you think. I don't understand why you are the way you are. But I see God in you. And I suspect, just like a parent who's even ugly, and let's face it, you know, most parents aren't all that wonderful looking, and by the time we were finished raising our kids, we, we looked even worse than we started out. So I always tell people that my kids got their looks from me because their mother still has her. But I, I understand this. When a little baby is born, the parent seeks to find something that looks like them. Oh, they have their father's eyes. Oh, they have a nose. Yeah, it's about six inches long. But, but whatever it is, they, they want to say, that baby looks like me. How wonderful would it be our Father in heaven who says, he or she looks like me. You've seen their eyes. More especially, have you seen their heart? Because when we're like him, there is a sweet, sweet spirit in whatever place you're at.